The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. everybody, welcome to the Grey Welkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in chronological order. We are working in all kinds of continuity lately, and today I get to do my final 1960s book on this show as we review Doctor Strange number 182, which is a beautifully drawn Gene Colan story uh, featuring a surprise appearance by the Juggernaut fighting a nightmare from the dream dimension. So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this today. I'm so happy to welcome Austin Gorton back onto the show. And we have two new professional guests that I'm thrilled to feature, uh, Mr. Peter Sanderson and Mr. Chris Sotomayor. I'm a huge fan of both of you, and it's just an honor to meet you both. Let me have everybody introduce themselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns if you'd like. Tell us a little bit about where we might know you from. And our intro question today is, was there a time in your life you believed in magic? Uh, let's begin with Peter. Hi. Hi. Well, my name's Peter Sanderson. And where would you know me from? If you're old enough to have been around in the Silver Age, you recognize my name from Julie Schwartz's letter columns. And then I um, eventually worked my way up to doing becoming a researcher for both DC and Marvel Comics on the original Who's Who and the original Marvel Universe handbook. And I became an I became a writer on both. And I became assistant editor on the X-Men and Star Wars for a while. And then I was a Marvel's house librarian. And then I went on to write things like my uh, Marvel Saga and Wolverine Saga and uh, various historically based stories from Marvel, including the creation of Victor Timely, whom you have saw in the last Ant-Man movie at the yeah. very end, and who apparently is going to be in the Loki 2 series. And uh, I spent years writing books for various publishers like Abrams and DK about Marvel and comics and, and superhero comics. And wrote a blog called uh, Comics and Comics, Comics uh, in Context for about 10 years. And right now I'm semi-retired and looking for someone to hire me to write more stuff about comics. Uh, Peter is one of the great historians of comic books of all time. We've had a chance to interview people like Elliot Brown and a few others that also do that type of work. But your uh, your recounting of stories and classics not only for comics, but across the entire industry, is so impressive. Uh, Peter, was there ever a time when you believed in magic? I can't say I ever believed in magic, but I have two addendums to that, which is that I have a few friends. I know a couple of friends who are stage magicians, and I always insist that they not tell me how their tricks work because I like to pretend that magic is real. And I am also aware that, like Alan Moore, 
believe said says he is a actual magician for real. And I have a couple of friends who believe in psychic powers or in the occult. And these are all intelligent people. So I try to keep an open mind. Fabulous. Uh, and then let's go over to Mr. Chris Sotomayor next. Hi, Chris. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Sotomayor. Uh, I've been a freelance colorist since about 1995, working for Marvel, DC, uh, working on books such as uh, Spider-Man, Avengers, X-Men, Captain Marvel, Nightwing, Detective Comics. Um, I'm right now working on a bunch of stuff from the Milestone imprint at DC Comics, uh, including the hardware miniseries that I read with Dennis Cowan. I'm working on uh, Icon versus Hardware right now um, and doing a bunch of independent stuff. Uh, one book is Dudley Dotson and the Forever Machine, which is going through Comixology. Um, like I said, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, I've been consistently working, you know, since the start. Um, I'm I'm just happy to be here. Uh, by my estimation, you have done over 1,200 books for Marvel alone. And when you add up your whole career, it's probably well into the thousands. Uh, like, it's a very impressive resume, <laughs> my friend. Probably. It's, it's, it's a lot of hustling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I certainly have questions for you today. Uh, was there a time you ever believed in magic, Chris? I don't know about ever actively believing in magic. Um, I mean, aside from, you know, when I was a kid, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, stuff like that. Uh, but I got to say, uh, although Penn and Teller kind of take the the wonder out of magic at times, like they're probably my favorite magic acts. Um, and I also want to say Lee Weeks. If you ever run into Lee Weeks at a convention... Oh my God, he's got the best tricks. I, I love that guy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, and then let's go over to Mr. Austin Gordon next. Hi, Austin. Hello. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am Austin Gordon. You may know me from the website, The Real Gentleman of Leisure, where I have been reviewing every issue of every X book since the beginning. Um, you may know me from Twitter, where I've been tweeting out. Uh, uh, 60 years of X-Men this year, um, each day going through each year, highlighting a specific cover or character or comic um, throughout the 60-year uh, history of the X-Men. Or you might know me from uh, the podcast, a very special episode in which I and some friends uh, review very special episodes of TV. Uh, Austin's always posting things online that I'm like, nobody remembers this but me and Austin. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Austin, did you ever believe in magic? Um, I'm not sure about magic, but I'm fairly certain I saw a ghost once. We we talked about ghosts a few weeks ago on my show. Yeah, those are that's that's its own kind of magic. <laughs> it is. Yes. Actually, I saw. I think I saw a ghost once when I was when I was growing up. I think I saw the ghost of my grandmother. Ghosts That's can be ghosts can be comforting or very scary. <laughs> yes, mine mm. mine was a little freaky. Mine was a theater ghost, so that was that was frightening. <laughs> and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he him pronouns. Uh, I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, so I've been a huge fan of Peter Sanderson oh. for many years. I also am a, a, a memoirist and a documentarian. Uh, I'm a therapist in my day job, but you guys mostly know me from this show, which is coming up on its 200th episode now, which I'm very excited about. Uh, we are uh, getting well into the X-Men continuity as we breeze through uh, X-Men The Hidden Years and uh, are moving into the 
through moving through that early 2000s stuff that was set in the pre-continuity. Uh, and then we get to go back to the 1970s uh, shortly, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I, I wish Marvel would reprint the hidden years. I really like those stories. They're interesting. It's really interesting revisiting them with different people. Uh, whether I, I think it was for political reasons that Marvel put an end to it. That it's sort of an anti-Burn thing. Sure, sure. There's been a but lot I of wish controversy that, I wish there. Make them available. Um, as far as if I believe in magic, I definitely believe in Ilyana Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i i remember when i was like eight years old my mom telling me santa claus was not real and i had this reckoning with like oh man all this stuff i believe in is not real and then as an adult uh leaving religion i realized a lot of what i grew up believing that i was taught was sacred was kind of supernatural and magic in essence which is an interesting thing to kind of equate to uh so i don't believe in magic now but i do love a good magic trick um when i was a teenager my dad lived in las vegas and he to avoid parenting <laughs> would buy us tickets to all these shows and then just like send my sister and i in to see the shows so he could go gamble and i remember seeing like siegfried and roy and some of the big magicians on stage and i'd always be like yeah i walked out like figuring out 75 percent of those tricks that wasn't that impressive <laughs> i was very cynical even back then uh, but I do love comic books, and I do love the concept of uh, suspension of disbelief. So I think anytime we are getting lost in stories, it's its own kind of magic. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Doctor Strange today and some of the crazy areas of the Marvel Universe that are so high concept, uh, which is why I opened with this question. Uh, I'd love to start, Peter, if you will tell us a little bit of your origin story. I have read some of this in interviews before, but I think it's so interesting and so wonderful. You joined comics at a time... That uh, well, let me let me just hear you tell your story about how you broke into comic books. It's really interesting. Well, I was very lucky at the time that I grew up and came of age because I don't think the way I got in would be possible now. Um, as I said, when I was uh, growing up, I mean, if we go all the way back, I can't remember a time when I was not reading comic books. But at the uh, the earliest ones I remember, uh, well, the my favorite comics going all the way back would be the Carl Box, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge's Go. Of course, we did not know his name, but I recognized his style, both as writer and as artist, from a very young age. And it was in the maybe around 64, 65 that I discovered superhero comics. And I started writing in the late 60s. I started when I was in high school, I started writing letters to comic book letter pages back when those existed. And Julius Schwartz, in particular, printed my letters over and over and over. I was one of his big letter writers. Marvel published my letters too, but not as much. And let's see, when I, by the 70s, I was uh, writing, I was still fighting fan letters, and I came to New York City to attend graduate school, Columbia University, and I got a letter from Bonnie Wilford, who was the Marvel, Marvel letter page editor at the time, and she said, I really like your letters, and I want to, I want to, now that you're in New York, I want to invite you to lunch, and I'm going to bring my boyfriend with me, because he likes your letters too. His boy, her boyfriend was Chris Claremont, 
who at that point had been writing the X-Men for a year and loved my letters. So I actually started meeting pros in the world of comics before I started meeting any other fans. And this eventually led to a meeting with Mark Grunewald, the late Mark Grunewald, who, recognizing my interest in continuity, invited me to become to write and be assistant editor on his fanzine Omniverse. And that, in turn, led eventually to my being, let's see, when did this happen? Uh, I think it was first Marv Wolfman and Len Wein who were planning to do the what turned into Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they decided they needed somebody to read through the entire DC Comics library and take notes on everything. So that, and so uh, that's what, what a I job. did. Here I went into DC, and I was um, three times a week. Originally, it was two times a week, but then we realized how long it was going to take, and Paul Levitt started getting annoyed <laughs> about this. So we moved it to three times a week. And yes, I wrote, read everything and took notes on everything, except you know, things like I didn't have to read Jerry Lewis or Bob Hope. Or the <laughs> Honey Lewis Only stuff that, and I really didn't have to read the Funny Animals comics, but because of Captain Carrot, I decided to look at a lot of them anyway, especially if Sheldon Mayer wrote them and drew them. <clears throat> now a super so, uh, fun a super fun side note very quickly uh and this is kind of how close i think claremont treats the people that he cares about in one of his very first x-men stories in early 1976 i think it's x-men 98 he works in a crowd scene where stan lee and jack kirby uh chris and uh bonnie wilford and julia yep. schwartz and patey greer yep. and dave cockrum are all in the crowd hanging out i think it's at rockefeller at, Radio City, at, Radio, at uh, rockefeller center in front of yeah the yeah so you you see how close everybody was back then. These are these are very inter interconnected individuals. Oh yeah, well I mean even as in my letter writer days, Julie Schwartz did a flash flash page in which the Flash was attending a comic convention, and he called did name he called out the names of Peter Sanderson, Irene Vartoff, and Mark Evanier, all letter writers. <laughs> and, and some Chris of these Lane and some also, of these people went on to become comic book professionals too. Yeah, all three of them did, yeah. Yeah. and. Uh, Chris also did a Doctor Strange story once in which he named a character after me, but killed me off. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so I went to the DC library, and I think it was after that that Mark Grunewald uh, um, pushed for me to become assistant editor for X Men because Louis Simonson had, who was editing the X Men was becoming a full-time writer, and Anna Senti, her assistant, moved up, so I became Anne's assistant for a while. And that did, after that, I I left that because I was getting offers of, of writing work, so I was writing the... I was become, becoming main writer on Marvel Universe Handbook, the first three versions, and the first version... and one of the main writers of the first version of the DC Who's Who, and that led to Marvel Saga, and that led to becoming the the company archivist librarian. And when the big downsizing hit, Mark Grunewald came through again because he recommended me to Abrams to write the book Marvel Universe. And that led to a decade of writing books about comics. 
You are an incredible historian in this space. We've done, because I'm a handbook guy myself, we've done a lot of exploring about those early books and how they were done. We talked about the overnight stays at the Marvel offices yes. where you're laying everything over the printer and trying to line it all up and get everything just, it's it was a tremendous undertaking. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about working on those original handbooks and about Mark himself? Uh well, as far as the overnight stays go, I never stayed all the way overnight. That's what Mark and Mike Carlin and Elliot Brown and uh, did. And but what I would do is that I would spend my the whole I would like I sleep late. I get up, get up, spend the afternoon writing Marvel Universe handbook entries. And this is of course before computers, so it's all typewritten. And if I make a mistake, I have to start over. <laughs> and so I do that and then around early evening I go into Manhattan to the Marvel offices which were now then at 27th Street on Park Avenue South and if you want to know where that is it's just just a few blocks down from the ba battle between the Avengers and the Qatari in the first Avengers movie <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> And at that time, going, and uh, so then I'd go go into the Marvel offices, and I'd do more typing at Mark's typewriter, uh, or his assistant's typewriter, while they're all working on getting the stuff typeset and all the other all the other duties they have to do to get this thing out. And then maybe at about eleven o'clock, I'd leave to go home. And at that point in New York history in the 80s, when you went out at Marvel's location at night, it was full of prostitutes. <laughs> so I'd have to sneak by them. And going home on the subway after midnight to Queens was not <laughs> the safest thing to do. But I was young. What can I say? I, I, I enjoyed doing it. Mark himself was an extraordinary man. He was my mentor. He was my friend. He's one of the people who brought me into the comics industry. He was, um, I think he, in part, he was like me. He was a scholar. He had a scholarly temperament, although he didn't have an academic background like me. So that's why he wanted to do an encyclopedia of Marvel characters. And he recognized that I was a kindred spirit as far as this went. And, but he also had this really fun side. If you talk to, say, Mike Carlin, well, you have talked to Elliot. They could tell you a lot more about that because he was like the, um, he was like the morale officer, unofficial morale officer at Marvel. He would throw parties at his home. He would throw parties in the office. He decorated his office. Sometimes it was a dungeon. Sometimes it was just stacked with, with paper. It was, sometimes it was uh, full of photographs of Michelle Marsh, who was this beautiful uh, reporter <laughs> on CBS News back then. Um, uh, he had costume parties. I mean, one, one year for Halloween, he had me he made a costume and for me as to be the Grandmaster and made me up with blue makeup to be the grandmaster. Oh, wow. So I was very disappointed with Jess Goldblum ruining the grandmaster in the movies. 
because Grandmaster is my my other self. Right. Um, Mark had a, a, a cable TV show, comedy TV show he did on free cable, public cable in New York City with Mark, Mike and Elliot. Um, and Mark was also a real, I think he was an underrated writer, but he was quite good. And Squadron Supreme is one of the great, when they talk about the great comics <coughs> of the mid-80s, Squadron Supreme is right up there. And it was coming out simultaneously with Watchmen. Um, and, he did, and he did Captain America for 10 years. I mean, yeah. it's a, it, it was a, and the thing is that he had, I think he had everybody, everybody at Marvel loved him. The, the outpouring for his memorial service was tremendous. Um, and he's still remembered warmly by everybody who worked with him. And what surprised me was that the people at Marvel Studios seemed to know about him because Captain America, that no, uh, the, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and the Loki series were full of Mark's characters, of references to him. For example, there's a scene, there's one Loki episode that opens in in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is Mark's birthplace. That cannot be a coincidence. Lots of Easter eggs. There's, a license, plate, uh, there's a license plate on a car in the Loki series that it leaves out some of like the vowels, but it basically reads Grunwald. So somehow the, they, it is even a now the character in the Loki series, uh, Mister Mobius, was created by Walt Simonson in the comics as a duplicate, as a double of Mark, and a parody of Mark. And in the Loki series, they cast Owen Wilson, but they gave a mustache to look like Mark. And they even said at one point that he. His favorite hobby was jet skiing, which was what Mark's hobby was. So how do they know all this stuff? <laughs> but obviously, there are people at Marvel Studios who who think very highly of Mark. Um, so uh, where else was I? Oh, well, my point about getting into comics, I mean, only being able, the circumstances under which I got into comics not being able to be duplicated now is that back in the early 80s, there weren't a whole lot of people who wanted to get into comics, really. Because it wasn't, it wasn't a big, a big business like it is now. Um, and I never actually tried to get into comics. It's like people got to know me through the fan letters and then through meeting them when I got to grad school, and then they Lennon Marv asked me, Mark Grunewald asked me, and the Sunday asked me to come in and do these things. Um, and it was a time when. Marvel and DC were both in the. They were both in New York City, which is no longer true. So you could work for both, and there was a comics community, so you could socialize with people from both companies. It's like every Friday night, people with Marvel and DC would get together at some restaurant in Manhattan, and it's like the party. To, it's like every month I was I was going to at least one party for for comics people. None of this exists anymore. The comics community is scattered, especially because ever since DC moved to Burbank. Sure. And, and it's like, 
there aren't the, I'm not there aren't the parties and the gatherings. The last big gathering I could call was the memorial for Stan that was televised, that was shot at the New Amsterdam Theater, when a whole lot of old-time Marvel people came out of the woodwork. It's just a and you know, it's for years, de- over a decade now. You can't even get into the Marvel and DC offices because in the old days, freelancers could just walk in. Now you have to go through security. You have to call in advance. And basically, the as far as I can tell, the Marvel offices are still closed. People still working from home. So what happened to me couldn't have couldn't happen anymore. I was at a very lucky time. Let's take a, uh, an opportunity to hear some of Chris's origin story for a moment, too. Chris, how did you break into the business? I mean, my story is kind of two-pronged. One starts with a B and E. Um, so, <laughs> so back in around uh, when I'm in in uh, high school, right? I just I finally decide I want to work in comics. This is what I want to do for a living. Um, my grandmother was not happy with that decision. My parents were a little less unhappy with that decision. It's sort of like telling your parents you want to be an actor or something, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And my grandmother was like, oh, starving artist and, you know, all this stuff. She's dead now. So, um, but I decided I wanted to do comics and I needed to understand what, what that entailed as a career. Right. So one day I remember this was about 19, it was either the summer of 1990 or, or 89. I think it was 1990. Um, I'm with a friend down in the village in New York. Uh, I, I'm from the Bronx. Um we had taken the six train down to the village and we were heading back up because it was getting late. So I was on my way home and we hit the 27th street train station on the six line. And mm. Peter knows this, that's right yeah. off where the Marvel comics offices were. And I told my friend, angel, his name's angel. Um, I said, Hey, this is where the Marvel comics offices are. And the reason why I knew that was because I was religiously picking up Marvel age magazine and, you know, I, I was big into all that stuff. So I knew where the offices were. I knew I had to go to the 10th floor. I knew where the mailroom was. I knew where the, the executive wing was and where the creative, the editorial wing was. So we decided to jump off the train at 27th Street. We go upstairs. This is at about, I don't know, like seven or eight in the evening at night. We know the offices are closed, but I kind of wanted to see. And I figured, why not? So we get up there, hit the the tenth the the tenth floor on the elevator. We get up to the tenth floor. There's no one at the front desk. I decide, yeah, let's go take a look. <laughs> so we go take a look. We go. We make the left down the, to the editorial wing, and like a Scooby Doo cartoon, there was a hand <laughs> on my shirt, dragging <laughs> me back. And this guy behind me goes, "Where do you two think you're going?" Uh, it was the security guard who was making his rounds. His name is Tony. I remember <laughs> his name is Tony. Right. So this guy, Tony, stops us. I tell him, listen, you know, I, I just wanted to see. I know you guys do tours, but I know it's already booked. And during the daytime, I was just in the neighborhood heading back home. I, I want to be a comics artist. I, I just want to see. So the evening progresses. He lets us go in. <laughs> He takes us with him into the editorial wing. In there is Jimmy Pamiotti, Michael Bear, 
just uh, this guy named George Roberts, who was in production, and they're all jamming on and Mark Texiera. They're all jamming on an issue of Ghost Rider that's due the next day. Um, the, the, they were they were <laughs> they were hitting this issue really hard trying to finish up the art because the editor, Bobby Chase, like her books did not miss shipping. And, you know, she's a stickler for deadlines. They had to get the book in. I got to stand there and watch them work. And George Roberts, the production guy, he took me on a little tour. Uh, me and my friend Angel, he took us on a little tour and answered all my stupid questions. Uh, I, I left there with a great experience and a bunch of posters and like uncut card sheets. And it was the most amazing thing ever. When they um, say breaking into the business, that's not what they mean. Yeah, that's it, <laughs> not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a dumb kid. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, no, I mean, that's, what, a, what an amazing this story. Is a, this is a perfect example of how open and free it was at Marvel back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before that's as the, unlikely to happen. bureaucratic and high security. Yeah. Yeah. It's as yeah. unlikely to happen now as, as oh, your never. story, Peter. I mean, that's just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even get past the first floor at, at right. the of DC's no. offices now. No, no, you couldn't. Yeah. So I got into the office. I got to watch them make ghostwriter pages and, wow. you know, understand what layouts were, what breakdowns were, what inking entailed, what coloring entailed. I was standing in Paul Beckton's space. Mm -hmm. I, I remember him having, uh, this little watercolor uh, Lone Ranger drawing up in mm -hmm. his space. And and I, I must have stared at that for like three minutes. I thought it was the most amazing thing. And I got so much education right there about what it took to make comics um, that I decided to go to art school after high school. So I went to SVA and I had a part-time job at a D'Agostino supermarket on the West Side, like right on 23rd, 27th Street, whatever it was on the West Side. Um, and there I ran into Dennis Cowan, who at the time, and this was about 1991, 92, and this was at the time when Dennis and Dwayne McDuffie and Michael Davis and Derek Dingle were forming mm -hmm. the Milestone Company, mm -hmm. um, way before they did the publishing deal with, with, uh, DC, uh, they had just put the Bible together and Dennis comes into the store and I ask him, Hey, do you ever use assistance? And he tells me, no, he doesn't, but he knows a guy who runs an unofficial, like, new talent program. And his name, you know, he introduces me at a signing that he's doing later in the week. Um, he, so he introduced me to Michael Davis, who was his milestone uh, partner. Michael had a class slash studio that he ran out of his home in New Jersey. Um, it's called Bad Boy Studios. In the class... We'd meet every Thursday evening and we'd get homework assignments, usually drawing assignments. Um, and in the class was John Paul Leon, uh, Sean Martinborough, Bernard Chang, just a bunch of, of guys who are now just, you know, amazing talents. Um, and I, and, and, and my dumbass <laughs> is in there <laughs> and I'm just, I'm learning from so many people in that, in that studio, in that class setting. And then Michael invites me to join the studio as an intern. So I'm doing that. I'm putting myself through art school. I'm going to art school. Uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm stretching my, my resources thin here, you know, just trying to do what I love. Um, and from there, it just kind of snowballed. Michael invited me to his next venture after Milestone, which was uh, 
launching a publishing slash R&D branch of Motown Records, um, where we were doing comics for them. And those were published by Image. Uh, and then from there, it just snowballed into a freelance career. And that was the, the Motown thing lasted from 90, about 93 to 96. And I lived in L.A. from 94 to 1996. Now, I'm getting the vibe you do mostly colors and comics, but it sounds like you do yeah. all kinds of art. In the studio, you know, I learned everything I could. I In the studio, I, I inked backgrounds. I did breakdowns and layouts. Um, I did, you know, some drawing. I did everything from spotting blacks and, and ruling out panel borders, you know, to coloring comics, right? All, all the little steps in between. I think the only thing I didn't do in there was probably lettering, right? Um, but I learned so much in that studio environment. I Actually, when I finished uh, art school, I only went to one year of art school at SBA because I found out when you can't afford it, they don't let you go back. <laughs> so I figured if I can't afford art school anymore, I have to supplement my, my, you know, my, my education somehow. So interning at the studio, which although was free, my time, you know, I didn't get paid for it, but I learned so much and I got the chance to actually work on projects for, for publication. So it was a great experience and it, it led to everything else that's ever come after that. Amazing. And you have a historic career at this point. Again, thousands and thousands of books, man. Yeah, I've, I've done a little writing too and, you know, some drawing here and there. Uh, not a whole lot lately. The last thing I wrote, I think, was a story for the Hurricane Maria uh, relief benefit, one of those comics. Um, I wrote a short story in there. And then before that, just like some really long blog posts and interviews and stuff with other fellow creators. Uh, Austin, do you have any questions? Um, I guess for Peter, obviously you're known as sort of the comics historian and the the guy that dives into sort of the the non-fictional aspects of these fictional universes which is a big um passion of mine as well i love i love non-fiction books about fiction <laughs> um what what is it that draw that drew you to that that aspect of comics the historical aspect and the sort of cataloging of things and the encyclopedia nature of of these sort of fictional universes that uh, that attracted you to that kind of work? Um, it comes from having a, an academic background and a scholarly temperament. It was that um, I was reading comic, comic books, as I said, uh, well, the, the two superhero universes, main superhero universes from the mid 60s onward. And I have a good, good memory and i tend to i have the sort of mindset where i like i i like classic material and when we get to say to the 1980s i still think of things for the 60s as classics as having enduring importance and that people should pay attention to the whole history the more i learned about the history of comic books and then comic strips as well the more i was fascinated by it um and so i i don't just believe that you know what's important in comics is what comes out this week this is one of the reasons i've disappointed a lot of comic conventions these days because they're about they're about mostly panels about what's being sold now 
pushing today's product. I'm interested in the whole history of the media, the whole history of these characters. I'm also, and I became interested in, I recognized, oh, by the 70s, certainly, that, um, oh, by the 60s, of course, because when I discovered Stan and Roy, Roy's writing, I mean, uh, that um, comics are the works of, they're part of this con story continuity, vast co story continuity, but it's also this the actual fictional, enormous fictional universes, but it's also the work of individual creators. And I want to learn more about the creators. I want to follow their work to discover what are, what are the right themes of a writer like Chris Claremont or Frank Miller or Neil Gaiman later on. Um, so, so I was applying the what I was learning in school, in college and grad school, about literary analysis to the work of comic book writers. And this is, of course, this was at a time, I mean, if I had set at Columbia University in the 70s that I wanted to do a <laughs> dissertation on comics, they would have laughed at me. Now I'm intensely jealous because the world seems to be full of academics who, spent, who, do, who study comics, and that it's too late for me. You know, mm -hmm. I can't go. I can't go back and get a PhD now. But I, but I was trying to do this sort of thing way back in the '60s and the '70s. I love yeah. it. I mean, that's one of the things I love about comics is that it has those dual narratives of there's a chronological in-universe history, but there's all this rich real-world history that goes along yes, with and it. I'm and, and I'm interested in both. Yeah, exactly. Same here. That 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 sort of the the stories behind the stories are as fascinating as the stories themselves. And, and it, so it so it so it upsets me when and this happens. Marvel is still pretty good at maintaining the continuity from Stan and Jack's days, probably because Stan and Jack was did such powerful work. But DC is is continually revising and rebooting its continuity at the drop of a hat, and I do not like it when people. Uh, discard the work of people who I consider to have been the great comic book writers and great comic book artists of the past. Right. But, right. And, uh, or when they miss, they wildly misinterpret what the original creators intended, because I think that the original creators are, that there have been great creators in comics over the years and that their work should be, and, should endure and should be recognized by people in the present day and should be built upon and not discarded. There's a difference I mean, between what, playing in the sandbox or making a new sandbox with the yes. old characters and toys or, or moving the sand from one to another. Now, uh, Peter and Chris, you both have worked in the X-Men quite a bit. Uh, Peter, I know through your handbook work, of course, but with your saga work, et cetera, I would love to hear you both share a little bit about what your uh, relationship with the X-Men professionally has been. Professionally? Oh, well, profession. Maybe it's better to talk about what my relationship with the X-Men as a comics historian and enthusiast has been. Sure. Which is that I started reading the X-Men 1966 and Stan and Jack were already gone from the book but Roy Thomas was doing it and I, I mean, and it really appealed to me because Roy was very good at characterization Roy was one of the things that Roy did is tying in things that Stan and Jack and the previous Silver Age creators had 
had, had done and tying them together bring, so that he was bringing in characters to the X-Men from el elsewhere. I liked, And I was very fond of this book, even though it was reportedly a low seller. And then uh, I was disappointed when it, I loved it when Neil Adams came on. I was disappointed when the book got canceled. And then I immediately took a f fancy to it when Chris Claremont started writing it in like 1976, 75, 76. And he had a voice that was, it was still working in Stan Lee's mo mode, but he had a, vo a, a new kind of voice, probably because of a, he was heavily influenced by science fiction. And I, I was very enthusiastic about it. And I just loved Chris's, or Chris's work in the 70s and the early 80s. And we, Chris and I became friends, and that brought, brought me into working on the X-Men as assistant editor. And pretty much I was recognized by that point, both in fandom and in protom, as an expert expert. And so Fanagraphs hired me to do this two-volume book of a set of interview book, interviews with the early creators of the X-Men called the X-Men Companion, which I no longer have a copy of. If everybody has a copy of it, I'd love to have a copy again. And I'll get, I, you know, if there's an if there are X Men projects, you know, for, like from Marvel Universe, Handbook or whatever, people come to me to get be an authority on their authority on the X Men. That still happens. <clears throat> Although I must say, I lost interest in it when Chris left the book, because except for Grant Morrison, I don't think anybody has really done anything that really interests me with the X-Men in the comics. I think a lot of it is just empty retreads of what Chris was doing and um, heading in directions that are so far, far off from what Stan and Roy and Chris were doing that it, no, I no longer have to have any feel for X-Men comics when I see, see them nowadays. I like, there's other books like uh, Spider-Man, especially when Dan Slott was doing it, where they seem to be, they have this. They am. They're able to capture the spirit of the characters from the Silver Age, and still do new modern stuff with it. And I love that. But X Men, it's a, it's really sort of unrecognizable to me now. Chris, how about you? I mean, I've uh, <clears throat> I've been fortunate enough to work on like the main X Men book when I was coming up, um, and then like a bunch of ancillary projects like the Cyclops miniseries or. Inferno, uh, X-Men, it's always had a, 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 a special place in my heart because it was one of the first books I got into. It was one of the first books that I, I started to understand the art of comics at that point. I started looking for like Dave Cockrum's work when I was first exposed to it. Um, the the X-Men comic that got me to collect regularly was 150. And it was so heavy at the time, right? It was like Chris Claremont's voice was had a lot of weight to it. His writing had weight to it that I hadn't seen in a lot of the other stuff that I've picked up. And like I'm a, I'm a young kid, so I'm not picking up a lot. But like my parents would get me Marvel Two in One or a Marvel Tales or something like that or a Spider Man, and you know all that stuff was great. But when I read X Men, it just it hit so different. It was. It was a, a team of folks who were kind of pushed together 
for a purpose and they were from all over the world. And I like that part of it that you had, you know, I know diversity is like this, this word right now that has a lot of heat on it or whatever, but, you know, it was a diverse group from everywhere. And that to me was interesting, you know, especially at a time you've got this big Russian guy and we're in the midst of the cold war. And, you know, even that, kind of humanized it, it worked to humanize that whole russian culture which i thought was fascinating um and i loved i mean peter was my favorite character in, in the book too so when i got to work on inferno a few years back i mean i jumped at it because it was a cyclops it was a it was a colossus book um and like that's my guy right he's a big strong guy i i grew up you know i'm this kid from the bronx i had asthma you know couldn't really do a whole lot sports wise or anything uh, tough to make friends, you know, and there's these these X Men characters, and and especially Peter, and he's a big strong guy, and I'm like shit. I wish I was that, you know. And he was creative, soft spoken, but he's big strong guy. That's that's what I want, you know. So yeah, that that was professionally, it's it's a feather in my cap to be able to kind of add, you know, my little bit of a contribution to the character and to the mythos. Now, Peter, I know I you've think, had. A, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I think that what I, one of the things I most liked about the X Men, both when when Roy was doing it in the '60s and then when Chris was doing it for for like forever, was it was a book with genuine warmth. That what what Chris is saying about Colossus is true with so many of the characters in that book during the Roy years and then more so during the Chris years that you. They were strong personalities. They they were people you wanted to know. People who didn't like Chris's writing used to mock him behind his back, say, for the what they called the jeans and t-shirt scenes, where the X-Men would like just be hanging around at the pool. But those I the love best. those scenes. Those, those were, the, were the best to, scenes. Yeah. <laughs> those were the keys to the X-Men's success because yes. they were a family. They were your closest but. They were your closest friends that you wanted to have. Playing they softball, were people yeah. you wanted to know. Absolutely. And whereas now I feel like there's a certain coldness and distance to the X-Men's they're just doing they're just doing superhero adventures. You don't have that person. You don't have the warmth isn't there for me. Now, Peter, you know some of the greats. I've had I've had a chance to interview some of your contemporaries on the show, like Annie Nascenti and Roy Thomas. We've done a lot of celebration of Neil Adams on our show because yeah. we had spent a lot of time in the 60s. I'd love to hear any Neil Adams stories you have. And then today we get to celebrate the work of one of my all-time favorite pencilers, who is not someone we get to talk on the show about much because we uh, he just didn't do a lot of X-Men stuff, but that's Gene Colan. Uh, and I would love to hear any Roy Thomas uh, or or Neil Adams or Gene Colan stories you'd like to share. Oh, well, I can't say any of them were close friends. I Neil Adams, my only real contact with them was doing an... I did an interview with him for about the creation of Ra's al Ghul. And it was a very good... It was a nice interview, but I didn't know him personally. But certainly... He made such a, an impact to him on me on the 60s. I think when I first started seeing his work, and it was what first made an impression on, on me was his work on the Spectre in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. This is before he's, he and Denny O'Neill revamped 
Batman and to the character he is today. But of course, those were astonishing too. But there was nothing like Neil when I when I first saw him because he was pulling influences. He was managing to combine the influences of people like comics people like Jack Kirby with commercial illustrators. So it was uh, this sort of it was realistic. It was heightened realism. Alan, Alex Ross has taken this even further, but it was like he was getting the power and the fantasy element of superheroes at the same time making them look like real people, like they were photographs take come to life. And that was tremendous. Uh, Gene Colan, when I first started reading Marvel, my favorite artist was Gene Colan. I think, again, is because, I mean, looking back at Silver Age Marvel, it's amazing because at the time, Marvel would get criticized for having a house style because Stan was indeed encouraging people to draw, to take lessons from Jack Kirby, study his work, and be more like him. But they, the main artists for these Marvel at the 60s had such distinct styles and far different than what you see at Marvel and DC today. And Colin was my favorite because, again, there was, as with Neil Adams, there was this realism combined with this the dyna dynamics of superhero action but i think it's i would differentiate him from from neil in that there was something there was sort of this romantic appeal to his cat to his people that um it was neil's was neil's people were heightened well, heightened reality, it's like a very sharp, it's like he was doing an HD digital TV back when in, in analog days. But in, in, in Cola's case, I think he must have been influenced by Alex Raymond. There's this sort of mythic, dreamlike, larger than life, romanticized quality to his characters. And which is one reason why he he fits this Doctor Strange story so well. Yeah. Again, I I, I barely I only I I run into Colin a couple of times at conventions. Had him do, you know, do a sketch say, but I didn't really know him. Roy, I knew to a cer certain extent better because um, we actually even collaborated on a book together. Uh, though that was more like he wrote one half and I wrote the other half. Um, but it's uh, that was the Marvel Vault. But um, I've talked to Roy on and off over the years, and we once had a, a bit of a falling out. But for the most part, it's been friendly. And the last time, last time I saw him was was at a convention in New York, and uh, we were on a panel together. We got along great. And Roy is now with Stan's passing. Roy is now basically, you know. Marvel history incarnate, the Marvel, yeah, the, the yeah. Marvel, the survivor from the Silver Age, the man who knows the, and who knows all about the Golden Age, and who's still with us. Chris, are and, you a uh, Chris? Are you a Gene Colan fan? Oh hell yeah, <laughs> I love Gene Colan stuff. It, it was, I mean, it's the closest you can get to to paintings without adding color, right? Um, and I got to speak to to Gene a couple of times um, before his passing, which was nice. Uh, I spoke to him at a convention. Uh, I spoke to him on the phone once. That was, you know, that was a little, a little difficult. Uh, 
but yeah, it was, it was great to be able to talk to him and, and, you know, kind of touch that greatness. Um, but yeah, Gene's stuff always spoke to me because it was like, it, it's, it had so much personality. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's, it's a little bonkers, but that's comics. That's the beauty of comics, right? Uh, the art was, was always so emotive. You always had a, a really nice kind of feeling from reading his stuff because there was so much mood. There was so much emotion packed mm-hmm. into his pencils. You could feel everything oozing from the page. It was like a Gene Colan page was an experience, just like Jack Kirby stuff was an experience. You know, it's not just something you you read and, and looked at. It's something you poured over because there was so much in there. Right. So, Gene, yeah, huge Gene Colan's Gene Colan's uh, early Daredevil work is some of my favorite Marvel work of all time. Uh, Jack Jack Kirby had a very signature style, as did Neil Adams. I know a lot of artists were told to try to emulate Kirby back in the day, but Neil Adams and and Gene Colan were the ones that really broke out and had their kind of own original styles. Gene Colan has this way of using like panoramic views that look like real backdrops, and then it's 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 almost like a. I think of like the Disney movie Pete's Dragon, which I which is what I loved growing up, or or uh, or you know Mary Poppins, where they're putting real people mixed in with the cartoons uh, and interacting with each other. Uh, Gene Gene's uh, art sometimes comes across that way. It looks like the environments are real almost, but the characters are are something separate. Uh, yeah. Gene, well, I that's like why to... he was a great Howard the Duck artist. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I love to do like a just quick bio whenever we're introducing a new creator on the show. So Gene, our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs. So your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Colin was born in 1926, died in 2011. Uh, his real name was Eugene Jean, uh, Jules Colin. Uh, he was born uh, Jewish in the Bronx. Uh, he has epic runs on Daredevil, Howard the Duck, Tomb of Dracula, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, Batman. Uh, he did two issues of Wolverine, but never any X-Men. Uh, he described a childhood where he just drew everything he could all the time. He started working in comics as early as 1944, uh, took a break to fight in World War II, and then came back and started working uh, for Timely Comics, uh, which you may know from Peter Sanderson's Victor Timely, <laughs> the uh, the predecessor to Marvel. Uh, after years in the business, he started doing superhero comics directly, and he became one of the greats right from the beginning. Uh, this signature style... Uh, he co-created Carol Danvers and Blade and the Falcon. He had this way of doing anatomy. I love uh, I, I love hearing Peter say it was like this kind of romanticized version of things. Uh, it just feels very uh, panoramic. And his, his pencils are beautiful. And this may be the only time we ever review some of his concepts on this show. 
one of the things I love about Marvel in the 60s as well to kind of introduce today's book is every book kind of had its own signature feel. Stanley had a common way of writing in that a lot of his characters were very Shakespearean with very lovelorn women and the villains were all, you know, kind of villain of the month. But, uh, but you know, Daredevil has a completely different type of storytelling than Iron Man, than Captain America, than the X-Men. Doctor Strange was uh, called the master of the black arts uh, back in the day. And uh, last episode, we talked about the Phoenix Force and kind of Marvel's cosmic entities that have a habit of being anthropomorphized into kind of human forms. In this issue, we meet the concept of eternity, which is one of Stanley's craziest uh, concepts. It's literally the idea of it's the entire universe taking on an anthropomorphic form. And eternity is like too vast to be able to comprehend. But also sometimes he like sits down with Doctor Strange and has tea. Like he's impossible to even comprehend. But also sometimes he gets captured by bad guys like in this issue <laughs> needs, and needs help well, to be This issue does not introduce Eternity. Eternity was created by Steve Ditko and Stan in Strange Tales. Right, right. Yes. Uh, and yeah, the, he's been around for a little while before we get to this issue, but this is his first appearance on my podcast. Uh, there's uh, also this concept. Right. There's also this concept of a multiverse out there, which is, uh, you know, a, a billion different timelines, infinity timelines, and all of them have their own universe, which means there's all these different eternities out there that exist. Yes. Our eternity has also been rebooted a number of times. It's canonically, I think, the eighth version of this universe that exists. Uh, and, you know, Galactus came from the one before. Uh, we've seen this explored recently in Al Ewing's Defenders work, if you have looked into that. There's also another of a number of realms that are separate and distinct from Marvel's Earth. Now, the one that we've talked about extensively on my show is the Crimson Cosmos, uh, in which the god is Sidorak. Uh, and I have a long two and a half hour episode on Sidorak with Hussein Rashid. If you'd like to go back and listen to that, we also have it. Does extensive... anybody know how Sidorak is pronounced? Is that the actual pronunciation? It could be Kaidorak for all we know. Oh, I've always said Sidorak. I've never even considered an alternative. <laughs> I've all I've also always said Sidorak, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say it. Why don't like, we ask the, Roy? That would we know, really, yeah, we really we should. should. There's a there's a number of realms out there, you know, everything from limbo to the dream dimension that all kind of have their own rules. They tend to have someone who rules over them. You've got Dormammu in the dark dimension. In this issue, we also see for the first time on my show, at least the character Nightmare, who right. is the, the lord of the dream dimension. And he's kind of like a Freddy Krueger, Sandman, devil guy who enters your dreams and can feed on their energy. He also mates with humans sometimes and he wants to conquer Earth. Earth and he hates Doctor Strange. We've seen this character fighting uh, Jean Grey and the X-Men recently in some of their modern books. Uh, when we last left uh, Juggernaut on this show, he had been cast off into the uh, the Crimson Cosmos. I think that's X-Men 31. Go back and look at the episode. Uh, the first episode I did of the Jordan White, if you'd like uh, to hear uh, the recap of that. Uh, we briefly meet Doctor Strange there, but we also get to meet Doctor Strange's, uh, they call him a manservant back in the day, but it's much more his right-hand <laughs> man. He, this guy has a very prominent role in the movies nowadays, and that's Wong and uh, Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea, who's one of my favorite characters of all time. Uh, so if anybody has comments on uh, Nightmare or Eternity, I know we'll get into them a little bit in the book, but I wanted to introduce those concepts very quickly. Uh, any thoughts on those characters? Well, Nightmare is a Sandman type of character in that he rules a dream dimension. But of course, 
the Sandman is sort of, I don't know if you, Mike Mir is an outright aggressive figure, and a villain, whereas the Sandman is sort of beyond good and evil and can be a benign figure, can be a terrible figure, but much more complex if we're talking about Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Sure. Uh, Eternity over the years, it's like, I think that writers have not really been able to decide what he is. His name is Eternity, which which implies time or timelessness. But he, as you say, he's Dick created this amazing design for him, which makes him look like the universe incarnate. So in part, he's the universe incarnate. In phys- and in part, he's, but he's also been presented as the spirit of time, time incarnate. And he's also been present, depicted as the, the embodiment of the life force of the universe. So that, for example, uh, it, it was later established that eternity and death, which, which Jim Stalin did a lot with, but Engelhardt did too, are opposites. And that eternity has a female counterpart, infinity, right? who Mark Runewall created. Who's basically and, eternity in drag. <laughs> right, and death, and it, and infinity is much more, much more seems to be life, purely the life force. And uh, death has a male counterpart called Oblivion, which is also a Grunwald character. Sure. And was the major villain, major menace in the Qua- it's Quasar series. So, sort of, and it's also been unclear. I mean, Eternity is supposedly, he's basically a vision. Of Standard Jack's Standard Ditko's vision of God. And there was a lot far of above us, all powerful, uh, removed from human emotion, except that, as in this story that Roy did, that we're looking at, every so every so often there's a story where he shows human emotions. Yeah. And you almost wonder if it's the <laughs> way that humans Roy, are Roy perceiving also makes him. Clear it, Roy also makes clear in the story, by the way, that eternity cannot be captured, that if captured for real if he's captured it's because he decided oh this will be an interesting thing to do for a while <laughs> but he could break out at any time dr. He strange, has all time at his call dr strange largely works in that he is casting spells because he's drawing upon the energy or kind of blessings from beings from other realms so this is an era yeah. where all of all of his spells rhyme he's calling upon oster and Ragador and Hoggoth and Dormammu and all these characters. So you see these spells very. Oh no, he doesn't call on Dormammu. That's what Mordor does. <laughs> well, sometimes he does. <laughs> well, he shouldn't. Those are mistakes. <laughs> He's gone dark a few times. Uh, uh, Chris, do you have any uh, anything you'd like to say about Eternity or Nightmare? Listen, th- all this stuff was bonkers. I loved it. <laughs> I mean, growing up, this was not a book that I read. Uh, there were a lot of uh, writing flourishes that was always hard for me to to get past. Um, I enjoyed more of the street level characters. Like I love Gene's Doctor um, Daredevil book. I loved his Captain America. I mean, I've got a page of his Black Panther stuff behind me. Um, I'm a huge Gene Colan fan. Doctor Strange was not a book I could get into. I it's it, it the the existence of a lot of these concepts like Nightmare and Eternity and and all these things and Dormammu 
these were all evidence to me of like some severe drug use in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I can't think of any other way that any of this stuff came about, but it, it is bonkers. I do love it. I do still love the characters, even if it's a book I wasn't reading at the time. Um, I mean, even this issue kind of predates my my comic collecting. Um, but just all these big ideas, it's just indicative of what comics is. And like mm-hmm. it's anything and it's everything. And it, it just like what else does this? You know, comics is the only thing that can do this stuff. Yeah, it's Uncle Ben getting shot by a bank robber, but also the concept of eternity being captured by the dream god. Yeah, it's right, because he wanted. I mean, to. really, yeah. if this is comics, Marvel comics of the '60s, you have all these visions of what God is like. I mean, what other medium can do it this way? I mean, the Watcher is sort of a benign, but distant god. Galactus is is the god of wrath, the god Celestials. who destroys, the god who kills. Yeah, right. Eternity is the god who create, who is who is actually literally everything. Right, Lord like, Chaos, Master Order. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the High Evolutionary is a godlike figure. They just, you know, practically all of the Marvel's omnipotence over the decades are visions of aspects of God, and it's again, it's uh, something this medium can do that other mediums don't. Yeah. Austin, is this an area of your interest as well, the Doctor Strange or high concept stuff? The high concepts stuff, certainly. I'm not a huge. Dr. Strange guy, my uh, my buddy and podcasting co-host is. He's Dr. Strange is his area of expertise. And are you more I, of a Beyonder guy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I touched base with him on on some of the continuity points in this issue uh, after I read it, just to make sure I had it positioned correctly in my understanding of sort of Dr. Strange's history. But I love all this trippy cosmic being stuff. The the concept of eternity as an outline, an outline, human outline star field with like a wicked collar yeah. as, as you know, all existence. And I actually just got done. The other thing I've been doing is, is tweeting out uh, a trading card every day from all the different um, trading card sets from the late eighties and early nineties. And in series three, they have a subset of celestial beings where they highlight mm. all of these, um these these heady concepts personified and it was really fun going through all of theirs and all of those again and you had you know eternity and death and the in-betweener and uh you know we we had a good chuckle about the stranger um who's just an old guy and (laughs) compared to you know this this sort of Dit, you know, this lovely Steve Ditko design of, of Eternity. And then there's the stranger who's an old guy with a mustache. And in the late 80s, they gave him a loincloth and a cape and uh, just doesn't compare. Uh, uh, but you see, that was Kirby design, the stranger. Yeah. And the point was in the original Stranger story that he was just walking around looking like an old guy in a suit. Right. I said one of the comments I made in that in that post was um, they should have done the trading card of that instead of the one with the loincloth and the cape because the loincloth of the cape pales in comparison to these other concepts, but you just put an old guy on a trading car like he originally appeared, and it would have really been. Tricky. I've got the I've got the stranger on my wall right there. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> so for today's Gil, I think it was Gil Kane who designed the stranger's costume. He's oh, the still... the the cape and all of that. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do some stranger stuff on my show next year. We'll get there eventually. I got I got oh. long term plans. I like this guy. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to introduce today's uh, issue very quickly. I think this will be the last book we cover in the 60s, and we're not going to make it heavy on Doctor Strange, although it's very much a Doctor Strange story. 
this is my favorite Doctor Strange costume. It's when he briefly wore his uh, his blue mask over his face. Uh, Clea's hanging out at his house. Wong is there. He's been fighting Nightmare for a while, and it appears that Eternity's been captured. And uh, he's wearing the Eye of Agamotto. Uh, in in uh, Jason Aaron's uh, uh, Avengers run recently, we've had the Avengers of 1 million B.C., where Agamotto uh-huh. is part of the prehistoric Avengers alongside the Phoenix. So they're they're like mm. old teammates, which is an interesting concept. But uh, Nightmare has and, attacked... And of course, we all remember Agamotto as the talking caterpillar for, in uh, Out of Alice <laughs> yes. in Wonderland. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Uh, so this book is from uh, September 1969. It's Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, uh, inker is Tom Palmer, who we love, uh, letterer Gene Izzo, and Stanley on edits. Uh, very quickly, just to kind of open the book up, we have a gorgeous cover, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on. But Doctor Strange has been kind of overwhelmed by Nightmare, who has taken control of the Eye of Agamotto. And that's kind of all you need as we are leaping into the book. But let me hear my panel here. What are your thoughts on this cover? I love it. Uh, Juggernaut is looking lithe. Uh, uh, there's, I'll, I'll post images, obviously, but this is a beautiful cover. Chris, do you have thoughts um, on this? I, I mean, I agree. It is a beautiful cover. You get to see all of our hero, all of our villain. They look powerful. They're, they're, their presence is heavy on that cover. It's exactly what you want. I mean, I'm surprised Stan okayed the green on the background because I know he had a thing with green. But it, it is really, it, it's a cover that I would definitely uh, look at and I'd be like, oh, shit, what is this? And it, it would definitely draw me in and I would pick this up. And it's Doctor like Strange the, versus Juggernaut, which I love. Yeah. I like the fact that, that. Both, but both Doctor Strange and Juggernaut, their hands seem to be reaching towards you out of the cover. It's sort of a, a fake 3D effect. Uh, I think that Juggernaut also looks much more lithe and agile than he did in the Kirby version, which where he's basically just sort of this tank that won't stop coming. And it's interesting to see Colin do the masked version of Doctor Strange. This is obviously a point at which Stan and Roy presumably decided to try to boost sales by making Doctor Strange look more like a superhero, and it didn't work. I believe this is the the book. But but it is intriguing. This is number 182. It gets canceled at 183 and then relaunched as uh, Doctor Strange number one. Four years later, yeah. It it takes a while. Yeah, the book was in trouble. Yeah. So the title. Love, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say one of the things I love about this cover. I forget who I, I read this from somebody. It was probably Roy Thomas that talked about, you know, the key to a good cover is capturing that moment before the action, not the action itself. And I feel like this is just a really great example of that. Um, like you said, Peter, you've got both of those hands sort of reaching out, creating that 3D effect, but it's sort of the juggernaut is bringing his fist back. Uh, to deliver a blow, but we don't see that action. It's the moment just before that action that creates that anticipation that really makes you want to crack open the cover and find out what's going to happen. So we won't we won't delve hard into this, but this book's called And Juggernaut Makes Three. Juggernaut, when we last saw him, basically got tossed into the Crimson Cosmos. It was all that crazy stuff with Zorak and the, the Zorak the Outcast. He's been floating around learning magic in the cosmos for a while. And uh, in his next couple appearances, we're seeing him try to get out. This is before he beats his husband, Black Tom, later on. (laughs) Uh, Peter, will you take us through? I I covered kind of the first couple pages. Will you take us through the first few pages of the book and tell us what happens? Oh, the first few. 
I thought you wanted me to start with number three. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, page three through eight, if you would. All right. Um, well, I'll just say briefly with number page two that look the colon layout here. It's so different than what other artists were doing at Marvel at this time, and of course, it's so different from Ditko, who gave, who co-created Doctor Strange. Some people say created outright and gave it such a distinctive look that was otherworldly. But Colin, in his own way, through, uh, largely through these strange, unusual layout, panel breakdowns, these layouts, the way that he has these oddly shaped panels, so different from the typical Kirby and Ditko grid effect, that gives it this otherworldly look. All right, page three. We start with now Wong and, and Clear. At, it's... Looking at these, it's interesting to me how far these characters have come since then, because back then, it's the 60s, Wong, the Asian servant, he, he's just passively looking on, clear. She's from the Dark Dimension. She's the, she's the daughter of Umar and a niece of Dormammu. She has magic powers, supposedly, but, as, but she, too, is the sort of passive character because she's the girlfriend. And she has the best hair. <laughs> she does have the best. She does have the best hair, but it's like, obviously, if this story was being done now, these characters would be helping Doctor. Should they be actively participating, actively trying to fight Dormammu and rescue Doctor Strange? Here, they're basically just looking on. Um, but um, I, but it's also this is a really good picture of of Clea by Gene Colon. It's. She, there's so much personality in her face. You know exactly what her emotions are watching Dr. Strange thinking about his face. Like you say, the hair is great. It's just, it's just, she looks like an individual person, not your standard comic book girl face. It's like, this is Colin showing what he can do. He's really good at this. And also, I will throw in here that I really hope they make a Doctor Strange 3 movie because I really want to see Charlie Theron playing clear for a full movie. Um, <laughs> so, looking at the dialogue here, yeah, here is someone whose very voice turns my blood to ice. There's, you know, Roy is basically working in Stan's mode of dialogue, and I think Stan was, he was an admirer of Shakespeare. In his own way, he was trying to do that kind of elevated diction that Shakespeare does for characters like Clear or the, and especially the, or Thor, or especially the villains. And I think even though, to an extent, this sort of thing seems corny and wooden now, but it actually gets the job done. Stan is always very effective with this dialogue. And it really works for me that Nightmare talks in these elevated, high polluting talks, as if he's Shakespeare's Richard III, because it gives him a sense of grandeur uh, and heightens the drama. Even though nowadays, this sort of dialogue for villains is completely out of fashion and nobody would do it anymore. Um, okay, page four. Um, One of Gene Colan's classic panoramics. So you get this giant two-page spread. It's beautiful. Well, that's actually page five and six. Oh, page pardon four me. is another example of the layouts, which the, 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 the unusual panel panel sizes and shapes that give that 
in its own way gives you the sense that this is happening in a mystical dimension. It's not in the real world. I mean, it contrasts the, the page before where you have Clear and Juan. They are back on Earth. Their panel is much more, it's still not it's a typical rectangle, but it's still, but it's a more conventional form of panel, shape of panel. The, this, the page five and six, we've got this pan, amazing panorama. We've got this this figure, this imposing figure of face and figure of nightmare, which reminds me of his horror work in Tomb of Dracula. We've got great body language with Doctor Strange. As you can see that he he's standing his ground, but even this is all taking him aback. But and this is Colin's version of doing a Ditko mystical landscape. Sure. And it works and it's and it works and it's it's not Ditko's. Ditko seems more like a surrealist artist, but this too works in creating otherworldliness. But what really interests me about this double page spread is what Nightmare is saying. He is saying that now that he has captured eternity, he weirds the scepter of power over all the earths that were and all that shall ever be. He is talking about alt he is talking about alternate timelines in both the past and the future. He is in effect talking about alternate universes. In fact, he is talking about the multiverse. This is one of the first this is like as you said, 1969. This is very early on in modern day Marvel, a very early mention of of the multiverse concept, which of course now now is the theme of the Marvel Studios movies. Yeah. This is an acknowledgement. I mean, I don't think at this point, I don't think they I, you'll have to tell. I think the first Squadron Supreme story, Squadron Supreme story may have been, a, it was right before this, I think, but it was around just the same time, late 60s. But it's like um, Roy is introduced to the concept of the, <laughs> of the multiverse into Marvel Comics, where it's going to take off from here. I mean, this is even before Roy, Roy launches What If, which is, of course, all about alternate timelines. Now, what would happen if Nightmare shoves all the events of time past and time to come into a hapless time present all in one moment? I have no idea what it would, what the how this is even possible, but it seems like it'd be a real mess and it would like destroy reality. Nightmare's having I mean, a bad dream. That, <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? That Peter Sanderson doing the doing the the podcast right now is would be simultaneously sitting next to Peter Sanderson having dinner in a couple of hours. I mean, I don't crisis. know what this would be, but it would be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next page. Um, yeah, a nightmare is talking about what a mess it is. And again, it's like, I'm not sure exactly what what Colin is doing with the serpents here, but it's this, but it's, uh, this, this first panel is like this amazing, this amazing evocation of sheer chaos. And for your noble berry begins to bore me. I should rid myself of your defeated visions forever. Again, it now reads as sort of corny, but it's also doing the work of making Nightmare this grand, imposing figure that you give the sense this guy is really, not only is he going to create chaos, but he even talks far grander than we do. So he's going to be really hard to beat. Uh, and then we got the juggernaut appearing. And it's a great, it's a really imposing, impressive entrance. Though uh, so I think that, in a way, it's Roy's making changes from Stan and Jack 
Jack's Juggernaut. Before this, Stan and Jack created the Juggernaut in the X-Men book. And then Roy brought, was the one who brought it back. So this is the third Juggernaut story. And the th one of the things about the Juggernaut is that no matter how powerful he is, he's sort of like, you know, Stan has this Shakespearean manner and Shakespeare of dialogue. And Shakespeare does these grand speeches for the noble characters and the, the grand characters. But Stan, but Shakespeare also does ordinary prose for common for the common people. And Stan does this too. Like Reed talks in a highfalutin way, but Ben Grimm talks like like a a a, a guy from uh from Brooklyn. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 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 no, I think think that oh, yeah, he's is actually in the Lower East Side. So he talks like a guy from the Lower East Side, and so did the Juggernaut. They, Professor Xavier was the educated one. The Juggernaut was was he wasn't like a D's and those guys, but he talked like an an average, uneducated, not too not too highly educated person. And here Roy's got him doing doing this sort of talking in this grand manner. I there once my name was Kate Markle, but now I am more. Now I am the Juggernaut. Well, that's that's the imposing entrance, but that's not really the Juggernaut's personality. And do we Jug want you to go further? Or does someone want to take over? Oh, that's that's a great place to stop. Juggernaut in his first appearance, we described him on my show as kind of looking like a frog potato. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and as I say, Colin makes him into this much more af athletic agile maneuverable sort of guy whereas was again it's like the, the the potato yeah because stan and jack met him to be this like walking tank yeah now he looks and like that's another giant... thing that they don't roy doesn't really capture in the story whereas he's got the the juggernaut becoming hi now i'm a now i'm a newbie newbie sorcerer and i've learned all these magic powers whereas whereas the juggernaut thing is he is absolutely unstoppable unless you get his helmet off when you can knock because that protects him from psychic attack and so it's like, so it's like the first Juggernaut story in X Men, Stan and Jack. It's not the first whole issue is the Juggernaut just marching towards the mansion, and nothing stops him. No barrier, no weaponry, no attack. And the only person who's really done that since is Roger Stern with the Juggernaut. Sure. People seem to keep getting away from that, and and don't even get me started about the people who do Juggernaut as a hero. But it's <laughs> like, uh, but this Royce so. Kudos for Roy. Again, and this is another sign of, you know, in that in that X-Men storyline that Roy did with the Juggernaut, he brought in Doctor Strange as a guest star. He had the Juggernaut trapped in the Crimson Cosmos of Katarak or Sidorak or whatever he is. And now again, he's tying this, he's tying Ed's different parts of the Marvel Universe together by bringing the Juggernaut into Doctor Strange's own book. But again, it's not the Juggernaut as I like to think of him. So, Juggernaut's, okay, uh, Juggernaut's coming out of the Crimson Cosmos. He's ripping out of the red. It's this gorgeous full plate, full page splash. Oh uh, yeah, and, very impressive entrance. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, Austin, will you take over the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. Absolutely. So Juggernaut appears before Nightmare, uh, who recognizes him and asks why he stands before Nightmare. And Juggernaut declares that uh, I do what I want, Fog Face. Uh, which is one of those great bits of uh, uh, comic book name calling. There's also a really nice panel here where the the green light of, I guess, nightmares like Eldritch Energy is is shading Juggernaut's face. And I went back and looked at the credits, and they weren't. I don't. I don't know if they 
weren't as a habit or just in this issue. I don't see a colorist credit on this one. Um, Maybe Palmer did it. it. I wondered if it was either Palmer or if it was Colin um, himself. But uh, the the coloring. I don't think Colin ever colored that, but Palmer did. Okay, and maybe it was Palmer then. Um, it's a really nice, just kind of shading and whatnot there. Um, and, and of course, Palmer is was Colin's greatest anchor. Per, yes, most perfect anchor, except for the fact that no one, even Palmer, could capture the effect of Colin's pencils uninked. Which is yeah. a, which is astonishing. I love I love Palmer. I was actually just talking to somebody about this. Where as I've gotten older, I've realized that um, I think Tom Palmer might be my favorite comic book artist because a lot of the pencilers that I talk about loving, I realize I love them best when they're being inked by Palmer. And so that yep. it's like I think it's Palmer that is really my favorite artist. This what he brings to the brings to the table all the all the time. Work with Adams. Work with B. Summer. Yeah. Work with, with, with Burn. Yeah, or just burn, yes. and I love I love Buscema and and Palmer. That's that's just that's fantastic. Uh, so anyway, he Juggernaut wants to get back to Earth, and we find out that uh, this he's going to get back to Earth through Doctor Strange's body? Question mark. I'm going to assume that was uh, the mechanics of that were established in a previous issue, but this was Strange's plan to escape into the uh, Crimson Cosmos. Uh, where he was hoping that the juggernaut's raw strength and these newfound mystical abilities would prove a bulwark against nightmare that enabled strange to escape. But uh, nightmare is, is wise to this. He sort of sees what's going on uh, and attacks Dr. Strange. And so then we pull back out of the, uh, the, the orb of Agamotto and we see Clea um, is crying now to your point, Peter, she doesn't get a whole lot to do here, but look worried and and cry a little bit. Hey, she also gets to answer the door. She does. Uh, she <laughs> Which she is Wong's job. Yes. Uh, <laughs> at, that is the moment when the doorbell rings. And, and he uh, actually answers it. And, and, and Wong does answer it and receives a telegram. And this is one of those, I did a, a quick bit of research, but the, the depiction of the messenger is specific enough that I wondered if it was one of those uh, you know, cameos of a comic creator or someone in Gene Colan's life or something like that. But near as I could tell, I, I couldn't find anything in a quick search that told me who that was. But uh, the telegram... It is, something, it is something that was done in the 60s that nobody ever does again. That Stan mm-hmm. and Jack and his, that their other collaborators would bring in these ordinary people from, you know, from off, from off the street to, in the middle of these superhero adventures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for comic relief or just to give you a sense that this is happening in the real these battles are still happening in the real world the normal world and there's a neat it's a neat juxtaposition between sort of the the arch drama of dr strange's struggle and then we cut to here's a guy delivering a telegram and what does that right. mean and um and on that telegram we see dr strange it's addressed to dr stephen strange and it includes his address which i believe is the first time the address of Doctor Strange's sanctum sanctorum is established in the comics. I think so. And A, I wrote a book called The Marvel Travel Guide to New York, Official Travel Guide to New right. York. So yep. that, that address is in there. And I believe that in real life, that address or something close, or maybe without the A, mm-hmm. was where Roy Thomas and Bill Everett were roommates for a while. Yeah, that was that's my understanding as well. That was their... 
their address. And I think you're right. I think it was without the A that they added that to. Look at all the and look at all the all the little throwaway occult bric-a-brac that that Gene puts into that panel. Yeah, like he he has like a chandelier that's all like crazy and loopy and the um, dragon in the front. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of just cool little background details that he puts in there. I also love the Rosemary Babies reference that the uh, the random telegraph guy drops here. Um, Again, something that they don't do in comics anymore mm -hmm, because it it dates it so quickly. So then everybody avoids it. Uh, Wong gets ominous vibes from the telegram, uh, but then quickly returns to uh, watching the battle unfolding inside the orb. And uh, he sees that Juggernaut has used his mystical abilities that I assume he just picked up through like osmosis in the Crimson Cosmos to shrink Nightmare down to his size and then basically like crashes him into Juggernaut, which is an interesting reversal of you know the usual Juggernaut crashing into things. Here he's making himself the wall and crashing the uh, villain into him. And Strange is watching all of this and hopes that this action will lessen Nightmare's hold over this realm so that he can hopefully escape. You know, I think that is indeed, I think that is indeed intentional because the juggernaut says how being built like a battleship is going to help me against you. He's going back right. to his real his characteristic diction, but he actually is planning to use himself as the wall, just as you said. Yeah. It's a, it's a great little reversal. I love it. Now in juggernaut's first couple of appearances, he had this like field that he could extend. It was like a force field that force emanated field, off yes. of him. And then later he could like, like toss crimson globules at you. <laughs> now he's using magic. Uh, his powers are solidifying over time until he just I, becomes the big strong guy. And I did wonder if this bit about how he's like absorbed some magical abilities while in the crimson cosmos was Roy trying to, um, retroactively established that appearance where he was throwing those crimson globs of energy. Cause we all know Roy loved to do that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> patch, patch those holes and offer up some additional context and things like that. Now, did then, any other writers after this have judge Gallat using mystical pop showing, throwing mystical force bolts and such like that. I think it could disappear pretty quickly. It, yeah, I think it, it did. did. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Chris, we think it's through the end of the book. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think we're at the double page spread now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where uh which I gotta say, it's an interesting decision that Gene made to keep the camera as static as he did instead of like rotating it around the scene, which you would probably see more nowadays. Um, it's all a lot of mid shots where you see full body uh, shots of the figures. And like Juggernaut is fighting nightmare physically, uh, right up until he's not where there's this energy coming out of him um, and they kind of uh, the, the tables kind of turn and nightmare finally gets the upper hand towards the end of that, uh, that spread. Um, and then we got on the next page, you know, suddenly uh, Dr. Strange is now going, going to act and he calls his cape and gets his cape uh, and, and, and the eye of Agamotto 
are, are all back in play now. And, and can I can I quickly, I'm just going to read this spell. This is an example of Doctor Strange in the 60s. Let my cloak be now transported through the dark and shrouding gloom. Let it fly as if it were living, for it runs a race with doom. Let the eye that hath offended now make haste to its own tomb. And let all now join their master on the winds of wild wantoom. Like, so you get a lot of that kind of stuff in the 60s, which is delightful. I yeah. like it. I want Benedict Cumberbatch to perform that in the next <laughs> Doctor Strange movie, word for word. And, and you know, I'm go. thinking of Al, when Alan Moore turned the Kirby's the demon into a poet. Right, right. It's like this sort of thing could still work. Mm -hmm. It could, yeah. It absolutely could. Um, so then we've got, now that Doctor Strange has his cape and, and his faculties, you know, now we've got uh, Juggernaut and Nightmare realizing that, you know, some other stuff is going on that they weren't paying attention to before. And now they have to worry about Dr. Strange. So uh, again, somehow juggernaut teams with nightmare to fire bolts of something at Dr. Strange. And uh, they bring forth eternity, you know, in, in his crazy tendrils and uh, cosmic outline, uh, you know, and, and we see that eternity's plan was, you know, he was never really captured. Because he's eternity, and you can't capture eternity. And they ultimately turn the tables on Nightmare. Uh, Nightmare's, you know, he's uh, he's taken for a wild ride. He's uh, thrown off his uh, off his his balance there. And Doctor Strange is just loving it. He's just he's enjoying every minute of all of this. Um, and and I don't know, man. Eternity, it's it's such a weird concept, but. Only Stan and, and Roy and Gene could really pull it off. Um, and yeah, by the end of it, you know, we see Wong and Clea. They're all relieved that everything was fine and they did nothing to help. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they were relegated just like any other, you know, Marvel supporting cast was relegated at that time. Um, and, and you know, we see the embrace. We see we're back to, to the, to the uh, telegram. And uh, everyone lives to fight another day. And now, Juggernaut just gets left behind in the Crimson Cosmos. So we next yeah. see him in Amazing <laughs> Adventures number 16, which we will cover on my show, which is the Beast Turns Blue era of uh, of his solo adventures. So we'll see Juggernaut again there, in which he turns into an old man. It's crazy. We'll, we'll get there in a while. <laughs> I got to say, on, on page 12 that Austin was covering, um, and only Gene Colan can do this. That first panel of that hand dropping the telegram, I've never seen that portrayed in such a dynamic fashion. <laughs> it's just a hand dropping a telegraph on, on a surface. And only Gene Colan could pull that off like that. So well, listeners, I know you're I know you're mostly here for X-Men content, but you get to hear a random crazy juggernaut story. You also get a, a shade of what was else was happening in the Marvel Universe in the late 60s. Uh, and this is part of the juggernaut continuity as you move from one part to the next. We'll come back to him in a while. He's one of my all time favorite villains. We also got to talk about Gene Colan for maybe the only time ever on this show. And I love him. I think he's just incredible. Uh, what are your final thoughts as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation here? This has been a joy to explore this with all of you. Thank you. Well, I would say that uh, one thing about the last page is that we have, just like Dr. Strange's mask didn't last, here he gets a new secret identity, Dr. Steven Sanders, as a thank you from eternity, who isn't such a distant god after all, at least in this story. 
And of course, I like this name Sanders, but it didn't. <laughs> but it didn't last. But it seems to be another attempt at experiment by Stan and Roy to say, "Well, let's try to see if we can turn him, make Doctor Strange more popular by making him seem more like a superhero." So let's give him a secret identity. But again, didn't last, and it's just as well. I mean, I'm glad that in the Doctor Strange movies we get to see Dick Cumberbatch without a mask, blue mask over his face. <laughs> and that Doctor Strange is his real name. Um, I, I think Marvel would have had a hard time selling Doctor Sanders as as yeah. a title. <laughs> well, Doctor Strange was going to be his superhero name, right? Um, it's like it's like, like, like a pediatrician. In, in one of the Avengers movies, where <laughs> Spider Man meets Doctor Strange, and he says, "Well, what's your name?" He says, "I'm Doctor Strange." He says, "Oh, we're using our fake names then." Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> great fit. Great fit. Uh, no, this is a. This is a wonderful issue and just makes me remember how, you know, back in the 60s, Mar when Mar Marvel Silver Age at its height, and yeah, it was a limited number of books, so maybe it was that made it a little bit easier to be at, the, be at your height with so many books at so many times. But it's like, this is the sort of thing that I, I would pick up like every week at the, at the, uh, at the mom and pop store and sort of go, ooh, and, uh, and yet sort of take for granted that this great art was, uh, this great fantasy art was be, being presented to me for like 25 cents every week. It's really incredible. And I'm sitting here in awe, like that. I just, I, this life where I get to hang out with the three of you for an afternoon and meet <laughs> Pete, Sander, Pete Sanderson and uh, Crystal Mayor. like just, it's such a big deal. Thank you both for, uh, for spending your time this afternoon. This is a wonderful thing to, to get to know you both. Well, thanks Thank for you for inviting us. Yeah, absolutely. And Austin, I love picking your brain about Marvel everything. So expect more invitations back, man. You're fun to hang out with. <laughs> Anytime. I, I have a blast. And I just, I have to say, Peter, it's it's an absolute honor. Um, your work has been hugely influential on me. I read a lot of the books growing up, the handbook. I have, I can see an eye shot copies of the handbooks here. And um, that, that Marvel Universe book that you did in, in the mid nineties, I used to, you know, read that on breaks when I was working at Barnes and Noble. Um, just great, great, great stuff. And um, I appreciate all the, the, the work that you've done through the years. Well, thank you very much. And every once in a while, when I run into Charlie Cockman at Abrams, I drop a hint that I would love to do an updated version of Marvel universe. That would be fantastic. Yeah. So maybe someday, who knows? So, but, but I really enjoyed this too. And please feel free to invite me back anytime. I would love to talk to you some more. In fact, all three of you would just, I, uh, I plan pretty far ahead. As you know, we, we schedule a few months in advance, but I, I love that I can invite all you back. Chris, I hope that works for you too. I, I would love, to I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're going to put this out on uh, June 19th as we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, we'll go in the reverse order. So we'll go Austin and then uh, Chris and then Peter. Uh, you can find my, my writing, most of my X-Men writing at therealgentlemanofleisure.com. Um, I also write a, a number of places uh, throughout the internet uh, on a number of subjects. Um, hit me up on, on the social media. Um, as of this recording, I am still on Twitter at Austin Gordon. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Mastodon, most of the major platforms, some variation of uh, Austin Gordon. You can find me, and I'm pretty good about updating those with the, with the stuff that I'm working on. And then uh, uh, my podcast is a very special episode 
podcast.com is our website, but you can listen to that um, wherever wherever you listen to your podcasts like this one. And then uh, Chris? Uh, yeah, I'm all over the interwebs under Soto Color, S-O-T-O-C-O-L-O-R, uh, Mastodon, uh, Blue Hive, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube. Just search the, that uh, that word. You'll find me. Um, I try to update my Facebook page as often as I can, which is not as often as I should. Uh, I'm coloring everything. <laughs> you know, I'm staying as busy as I possibly can. All of uh, the things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I try to keep a hand everywhere. Uh, DC, I'm doing Icon versus Hardware. Uh, at Marvel, I'm at, just doing a bunch of covers and some short stories. I'm doing some indie books. One's called Absolve that I'm doing with Koi Fam. I finished doing Happy Hill with my friend Joe Mulvey and Rich Dueck. Um, I'm also working on, uh, well, I've finished my uh, my run with Jamal Eigle on a book called Dudley Dotson and the Forever Machine, which is a comicsology original, but should be in print form at Dark Horse. Um, and I also teach an online class at comicsexperience.com. Uh, so if you're interested in learning how to color, Digitally, you know, you can click the courses tab there and look under the art section. I uh, one of my favorite drag queens. Uh, when people say, "How are you doing?" she says, "I'm uh, I'm booked and blessed." And that's uh, that sounds like you, my friend. You're all over the place. I love hearing you so busy and thriving. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank uh, and then Peter, I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you, I recommend Instagram because I do daily posts on comics history year round, which I which I hope a lot of you would find interesting. And I keep planning to launch a new blog, maybe on Substack, but it's uh, a matter of getting up enough, enough time because even though I'm retired, I spend like half the week in medical treatment, alas. So I, I it's ha- hard for me to get up enough energy to go, go back to uh, writing on a regular basis, but I still have plans to do it. And eventually it will happen. Uh, phenomenal. And again, Peter, the handbook guy in me, uh, I, I'll, I'll report this back to my old whole like cohort of, of handbook friends. We're all still we're all still buddies, although it's been a few years. But this is just an enormous honor. I imagine you've become uh, acquainted with Jeff Christensen and some of the other guys over the years uh, through the, the 2000s run of handbook stuff. But we, uh, we, yeah, we all I'll, love I'll you. You're great. One of them helped me move to my like, current apartment. So, yeah, <laughs> oh. that's amazing. Okay. Love it. <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. You can uh, you can find me online through the podcast, although I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. But Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. Again, we're always posting regular content. The book, the show is booked into September. We have amazing things coming up. The very next episode after this, we have one uh, one episode every month where we do a mock jury trial and do a deep exploration on a particular character. It's basically like me writing a college thesis on one person at a time. Uh, And we get to do the character Polaris uh, in our next episode after this one, which I'm very excited about. Uh, And then the next main episode after this, we're going to be reviewing Uncanny Origins number nine, which is a Storm origin series uh, with Annie Nascenti, who is writing the new Storm series that's coming out with Marvel. Uh, My friend Carrie Harris, the incredible novelist, is joining me there as well. So uh, watch for that. Uh, Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. 
look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grandma and Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grandma and Lane.